Ah, it's on. Okay. All right, we'll see what we got here. We got a uh, couple prayer requests. Let's see here. Uh, Sunday, I'll give an announcement first. Sunday, if you're here, we're going to have a speaker from Uganda here. He's going to open us instead of Jim, and he'll speak for 20 minutes or so like Jim normally would. But uh, his name is Umar. He is a Muslim that converted to Christianity. And after that, he uh, was uh, uh, attacked with acid. And so he was in the hospital and all torn up. And he'll come and talk about his uh, experiences and his, I don't know what, I don't know uh, the, uh, everything he's going to talk about, but it'll be interesting. And we will start a little bit early on Sunday instead of, uh, you know, the music at 9.45 and then starting at 10, we'll probably start the music at like 9.40 and then probably get started with the service with that guy speaking probably about 9.45 or 9.50. That way we can make sure we can fit him in there. But that'll be kind of interesting. And if you can be here for it, I think you'd enjoy it. Um, and then let's see here. I got a request from uh, Mike. Uh dealing with two cancers right now at one time and he's on a registry at UCSF for a transplant. I think it's a liver. I, he didn't specify, but I think he means a liver transplant. And he's facing chemo for myeloma and he's good with whatever happens. But he says, oh, I'll take the prayers, but uh, I'm okay with whatever happens. But he did ask for prayers for his wife, uh, Sonny, because um, uh, that's just one of those things that, uh, uh, you know, he, he, Obviously, she's got the stress of going through this with him, and if for any reason the Lord decides to call him home, then that's kind of, uh, you know, a little difficult there, too, as well. So uh, we'll have him in prayer, and um, I know there's other prayer requests, which I haven't, I, this week I've got the prayer requests, I prayed about them, but I have not had a lot of time, and I didn't really write anything down, so we'll just remember everybody in general as we go. And today is the 13th, 12th? Anybody? Oh, 12th, because yesterday was 9-11. That's right. We'll read September 12th and see what happens. Uh, its membership was relatively small, but its influence continues today. On September 12th, 1905, approximately 100 people met in a loft over Peck's Restaurant. Is that working? It is working. At 14140 Fulton Street in Lower Manhattan. The purpose of the meeting was to strategize the overthrow of the Christian worldview that still pervaded much of American culture and to replace it with the ideas of a then rather unknown writer by the name of Karl Marx. They called the organization they formed that day the Intercollegiate Socialist Society. The godfather of the organization was a 27-year-old author named Upton Sinclair. The first president chosen was the author Jack London, age 29. Also present were Clarence Darrow, the attorney. The strategy of the organization was to infiltrate their ideas into academia by organizing chapters in as many colleges and universities as possible. And they have pretty much won that battle at this point. They have taken over every university in America uh, with the, the commies and the socialists. But And they, uh, let's see here, and organized, they did. Walter Lippmann, Later author and director of the Council on Foreign Relations was the president of the Harvard chapter. Harvard is done. It's gone. Uh, Walter Ruther, the future president of the United Auto Workers, another lefty organization, headed the Wayne State chapter. And Eugene Debs, 
who went on to become the five-time socialist candidate for president, was a leader at Columbia. The society grew. The first annual convention was held in 1910, and by 1917, they were active on 61 campuses and a dozen graduate schools. Other early activists included W.E.B. Du Bois, who, was, who would become an official of the NAACP and later a Communist Party member, once again, another totally left group, and Victor L. Berger of Wisconsin, who became the first socialist elected to Congress. In 1921, the Intercollegiate Socialist Society took its next organizational step, changing its name to the League for Industrial Democracy. Its purpose was education for a new social order based on production for use and not for profit. Norman Thomas, another perennial socialist candidate for president, was the leader behind the scenes. The renamed organization's first president was Robert Lovett, editor of the New Republic, and the field secretary was Paul Blanchard, who be later became an author. The college chapters of the Intercollegiate Socialist Society now became the Student League for Industrial Democracy. As members graduated from college, some entered the pulpit, others the classroom, some wrote textbooks, while others entered the labor movement in both political parties. When the New Deal began in 1933, they were prepared. At the time, the League had only 5,652 members, but they were in positions of leadership everywhere. By Real infection. This is how infection gets in there, and uh, we're suffering because of these today. Uh, the last uh, uh, how many presidents on the uh, left have been totally socialists, although they haven't admitted it. But by 1941, John Dewey, the founder of progressive education and the leader, League vice president in the 1930s, was its honorary president, and Reinhold Niebuhr, the theologian, its treasurer. Dewey had already organized the Progressive Education Association and the American Association of University Professors. The League for Industrial Democracy was so successful that those who held membership in the movement were cooperating with it could have been a list of who's who in America. Robert N. Baldwin, founder of the American Civil, Civil Liberties Union, Charles Beard, the historian, Carol Binder, editor of the Minneapolis Tribune, Helen Gahagung, I can't pronounce that, whatever, Douglas, the congresswoman who was defeated by Richard Nixon for the U.S. Senate, Felix Frankfurter, Supreme Court Justice, Sidney Hook, the educational social philosopher, Edna St. Vincent Millay, the poet, Henry Morgenthau Jr., one of Franklin Delano Roosevelt's most trusted economic advisors, Walter and Victor Ruther, United Auto Workers, Will Rogers Jr., humorist, Franklin Roosevelt Jr., the president's son, and Arthur Schlesinger Jr., the historian. The obscure loft in Manhattan where they organized has long been forgotten, but what began there that night permeates America's institutions and culture, having replaced the Bible-based values of the 19th century with the liberalism based on Marxism. Real disappointing uh, uh, thing. Usually they have things about Christian history and positive things, but they're warning us. So I, I am glad they did this, but it's kind of disappointing to read. Reflection. To what extent do you find, what extent do you feel that you have been influenced by the anti-Christian forces of modern culture? Do you think you have picked up any of the values of the League for Industrial Democracy? Unfortunately, all of us are the products of our own backgrounds. Even after we become Christians, we are still influenced by our culture. We need to evaluate our presuppositions against the truth revealed in God's word. 
And they say in Philippians 4, 8, 9, fix your thoughts on what is true and honorable and right. Think about things that are pure and lovely and admirable. Think about things that are excellent and worthy of praise. Keep putting into practice all you learned from me and heard from me and saw me doing in the God of peace will be with you. So it's a warning. You know, I mean, we want to have something uplifting in those devotionals, but that is a warning. And uh, I think we all ought to pay heed because these people have infected everything. They've infected the pulpits of denominations. We've seen entire denominations have been completely, they've eradicated anything to do with Jesus or Christianity. The Methodists and the uh, Episcopalians, and we could go on down the line. They're in, they have infected the uh, Southern Baptist Convention where it is really making bad decisions right now. We've got to be on guard. We've got to stand against that type of thing in the government because the government is what we live under. And as I said, it influences you eventually in every part of your life, even down to your faith. So here at the Superior Word, we don't have anything to do with the government. Zero. We, have, we don't have to pay property taxes here, and we do, because I am not going to have us take anything from the government where they can later say, well, you've benefited from this. It's not going to happen. But that's uh, our decision. We have zero to do with the government in this church, and I would like it to stay that way. Hopefully, you know, if I kick off, somebody else will take over and it'll continue in that vein. But whatever, you know, as long as we're going right now, we'll keep proclaiming this word in Jesus Christ and not let that type of infection get into our, our theology. But having said that, we'll go ahead and open in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the chance to be in your presence today, and we thank you for this wonderful, precious word that you've given us. We certainly pray for Mike and Sonny, and also for anybody else that uh, you've sent our way in the past week that has uh, problems or stress or distress, and all of the names that we've mentioned over the past couple weeks, many of them are still uh, waiting for resolutions to their situations and their problems. And so we just lift all of them up together. And anybody here, I know we've got a couple people with some aches and pains right here in the church today. And we would pray that you would be with them and give them comfort in their affliction. And just help us, Lord, to uh, face our trials, at least with the joy of knowing that you are with us and you have something better for us. And having broken bodies often gives us a desire even more to want to be with you. And so that's actually a good thing. So whatever comes our way, help us to just praise you and glorify you through it. And Lord, we ask that you uh, bless this word today and we would pray that it would be handled properly and that we would not deviate from it in any way except to uphold and exalt you and nothing else, no deviating at all. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Jim is in Chicago today, he's not around. And then Linda, she said she probably wouldn't be here. Well, she's not here, so she'll get uh, two lashes with a wet noodle when I see her. But she did say she probably wouldn't come. So there you go. Um, let's see here. And Susan Garrett's not here. I noticed she's not here yet. My guess is that the door will be cracking open anytime soon. Um, or it will be happening soon. But we'll get started right now with... Uh, oh, I didn't read Psalm 119 today. So let's do that first. Psalm 119 starting in verse 33. We just read eight verses a week. And the reason why we do that is because if you pay attention while I'm reading this, every single verse in Psalm 119 in one way or another takes you right back to God's word. So we'll see what it says here. Here it is, verse 33. Teach me, O Lord, the way of your statutes. Right there. And I shall keep it to the end. Verse 34. Give me understanding and I shall keep your law. Indeed, I shall observe it with my whole heart. Make me walk in the path of your commandments, for I delight in it. Incline my heart to your testimonies and not to covetousness. Turn away my eyes from looking at worthless things 
and revive me in your way. Establish your word to your servant who is devoted to fearing you. Turn away my reproach, which I dread, for your judgments are good. Behold, I long for your precepts. Revive me in your righteousness. Uh, there you go. Wonderful stuff from Psalm 119. And we're in 1 Corinthians chapter 14 still. And we're going to start in verse 15 today. Burke, I have something for you. Before you leave, I owe you something. So I have that waiting right here for you. All right. And um, let's see here. We're in 1 Corinthians 14 verse 15. But before I get into that, let me read you. I typed a commentary. I think it was this morning. might have been yesterday because I read yesterday's. And uh, anyway, 1 Peter chapter 1. I've already started typing the 1 Peter commentaries. They'll be out starting in just a few more days. We're finishing James right now, one verse at a time. And for those who have been brave enough to stick that out, it's been 108 days of joy. We've got about four or five more days to go. And then uh, uh, Peter is a couple verses shorter. I think it's 105 verses. So it'll just blow right by. But uh, let's see here. What did I type? Um, um, yeah, you know, talking about Mike with his cancers and he says he's good with it. I'll start with verse three. It all fits together. And I think I typed seven this morning. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his abundant mercy has begotten us to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled. And that does not fade away reserved in heaven for you who are kept by the power of God through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. So there you go. I, I'm going to stop right there. I said I'd go down to uh, verse seven, but that's good enough. Everything that he wrote in those three verses is eternal salvation. It's as clear as it could be how people can say he's not talking about something other than that. I don't know. But anyway, I just, we have a living hope. It's incorruptible it's undefiled it does not fade away it's reserved in heaven for you everything he said eternal salvation you are the saints of the lord and you will not lose this you may lose your way which he says in 2 peter chapter 1 you might lose your way but god will not let go of you it's a sure thing so have that confidence and when you're having a bad time because of cancer or because of you know a broken body of some type or another know that god is there with you and he has promised you something a lot better so here we go. Uh, 1 Corinthians 14, verse 15. What is the conclusion then? I'll tell you what, I'll take you back and we'll read a couple verses so you know where we are. I'm going to start with verse 6. But now, brethren, I come to you speaking with tongues. What shall I profit you unless I speak to you either by revelation, by knowledge, by prophesying, or by teaching? Even things without life, whether a flute or a harp, when they make a sound, unless they make a, a distinction in the sounds, how will it be known what is piped or played? For if the trumpet makes an uncertain sound, who will prepare for the battle? So likewise you, unless you utter by the tongue words easy to understand, how will it be known what is spoken? For you will be speaking into the air. There are, it may be, so many kinds of languages in the world, and none of them is without significance. Therefore, if I do not know the meaning of the language, I shall be a foreigner to him who speaks, and he who speaks will be a foreigner to me. Even so, you, since you are zealous for spiritual gifts, let it be for the edification of the church that you seek to excel. Therefore, let him who speaks in a tongue pray that he may interpret. For if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my understanding is unfruitful. Here it is, verse 15. What is the conclusion then? I will pray in the spirit, and I will also pray with the understanding. I will sing with the spirit, and I will also sing with the understanding. 
Okay, I'll explain this before we go uh, get into my actual comment on this, is that we got a couple people that haven't been in the Bible study before. I read from the notes. I've been writing a daily commentary of the Bible now from Romans all the way through the Bible I'm, for the past 12 or 15 years. I didn't save it the first time, but I've saved it since then. I've started again and I've written. So this is my commentary. Rather than just making stuff up while we're having a, a class, I read from my commentary. So let's see. Here are my comments on 1450. The previous verse said, for if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my understanding is unfruitful. Anytime someone prays in a foreign language, they have no change in their mental state concerning the prayer. We talked about that a week or so ago when uh, I used Martin Luther as an example. He's written prayers that are read in Lutheran churches to this day. People read them and they have no idea what they're reading. Unless they speak German, they don't know what they're saying. So there you go. That's an example of it. There, anytime someone prays in a foreign language, such as Martin Luther's prayer, they have no change in their mental state concerning the prayer. If a person doesn't understand Latin, but knows prayers in Latin, which is a very common occurrence, especially in the uh, Catholic Church, there's no edification in uttering the prayer. Everybody got that? If you hear somebody speaking Latin, doesn't do you any good unless you know what he's saying. And if he doesn't know what he's saying, doesn't do anybody any good. All right. I am using known languages because that is the only thing that the Bible speaks of. It never speaks of what goes on in charismatic churches, ever. We've gone through that. We went through all the details in those previous verses. If you're joining today and you haven't watched those and you want to understand what tongues is speaking of, go back and watch those. It is always speaking of a known language that is a language that is known to the person that is speaking it. At least in the speaking, the oral part of it, he may not understand what he's speaking, as I said like with the prayer just now, but it is always a known language, okay? So, if a person doesn't understand Latin and they pray in Latin, which is a very common occurrence, there is no edification in uttering the prayer. They are just meaningless words which come off the tongue, but which serve no actual purpose for the one praying, nor do they serve any purpose for the one hearing if that person doesn't speak Latin. I do this every week when we take the communion. I always like to say what the Lord said. So you kind of have a feel for what the Lord said when he had the uh, last supper and he broke the bread. He would have given a blessing over that. No problem. It's very common. But if I didn't understand what I was saying, I'm not ed being edified. And certainly if the people in the congregation don't understand it, they're not being edified unless I explain what is being said. And so that's what we do. We give the prayer in Hebrew so you can hear it in Hebrew, and then I say it in English. It's not necessary to do that, but that's just our tradition here at the church. Okay, that is what this is speaking of. All right, this was the case in the Roman Catholic Church for eons. Until 1965, the Catholic Mass was completely in Latin. That's correct, and nobody was edified. It was a useless gesture to go to Mass in order to learn about Christ because there was nothing to learn. There was just incoherent words coming from the priest. And this is still true with portions of many services, and it actually serves no valid purpose, according to Paul. In response to such ostentation, he asks an obvious question. What is the conclusion then? He is asking those at Corinth, and thus us, to think the issue through. What good at all is such a display other than to have the one making it making it feel good about speaking in a tongue that no one understands. That's all it does. If I stood up there and I gave the prayer in Hebrew and then I finished and didn't tell you what it said, all it does is, oh, well, Charlie can speak in Hebrew. Big deal. I don't know what I'm speaking, so what difference does it make? All right? 
Sergio can speak in Hebrew and he understands it, so he's qualified to translate what he's saying. All right, if he spoke in Hebrew, I could not translate for him, except maybe on a very basic level. Okay, so there's no edification. The liturgy was intentionally kept in Latin to keep the congregants in the dark as to their spiritual needs. Instead of learning about Christ, they were kept dependent on the church. It became a dark and a sinister practice of bondage. In response to such unfruitfulness, Paul proclaims, I will pray with the Spirit and I will also pray with understanding. There needs to be a uniting of the Spirit, which means the breath, meaning the words issued off the tongue. He's not speaking about the Holy Spirit here. The breath, the Spirit, the Ruach in Hebrew, it signifies either the Holy Spirit or it means wind or it means breath. Same thing in Greek, pneuma. The word means either spirit, it means wind, or it means breath. It's the same in both Hebrew and Greek, okay? And the mind or understanding, the breath and the mind. If not, then there has been only wasted effort on the part of the one praying. But continuing further and in a point that we should not miss, he says, I will sing with the spirit and I will also sing with the understanding. Paul speaking in the first person, but using it as a tool to mean all people individually includes singing along with speaking. It is such an important thing he has said here to refute the doctrine of speaking in incoherent tongues, such as is heard in charismatic churches. His words demonstrate conclusively that the tongues Paul is speaking about are known languages. No doubt about it. We've gone through that already. He's doing it again right here. They are known languages. As he combines prayer and singing in one verse, which is discussing the same subject, it shows that the sounds that he has been, is, and will continue to be speaking of are known languages, not made up sounds. Songs are written in known languages. They may not be known to the hearers, but they are always words that have a known message by the one composing them. If you go to the opera, okay, and you listen to uh, Beethoven's Fifth Symphony or his Ninth Symphony, what language is it in? German, right? And they sing it, and most of the people have no idea what they're singing. They're Americans, they're singing in German. They're not, they're just singing, okay? And the people in the audience, unless they speak German, don't know it. But when he wrote that opera or those operas or whatever they are, they're not operas, are they? Symphony. When he wrote those, he knew what he was writing. In his audience, he expected them to know because he was writing to the German people, right? People sing the Messiah, okay? Every year I listen to Handel's Messiah. It's wonderful to listen to, especially around Christmas time. It was written in English, and it was written to people that know English, but it's gone out around the whole world, and people listen to it, but they don't know what they're listening to unless they have it translated. Everybody get what Paul is saying here? That's what he's speaking about. That's exactly what he's speaking about. Okay, this was addressed by Paul earlier when speaking of the three aspects of sound. Does anybody remember the three aspects of sound that we talked about in earlier verses? It was very clear in the Greek, and I translated it for you. Voice, distinction, and sound. Together, these are combined with words, which then produce a song. It is more than unreasonable to assume that Paul means anything other than a real song, which uses known words. To claim otherwise would be done so based on a presupposition which is not supported at all in his commentary in this chapter. Life application. I can't read it because it's all in Chinese. Okay, I put all Chinese there. 
And then I say after that. Oh, I'm sorry. What I said is, in order to be edified, one needs to speak coherently and in a language that the receiver of the instruction understands. Paul asks us to use words which edify and build up others. Let us endeavor to do so. So I have the Chinese put there, and then I put it into the Universal Translator on Google, and that's what I came up with. This is first I typed it in English, and that's what I came up with in Chinese. But if you're reading my commentary, you'll look at that and you'll say, what is that? Okay, because you have no idea. Why would anybody do that? It would be like me writing a letter to one of you guys in Chinese and saying, okay, there you go. It's nice to have talked, and I'm glad we had a good time and all that, and you can't read any of it. That is what Paul is speaking about. Verse 14, 16. Otherwise, if you bless with the Spirit, how will he who occupies the place of the uninformed say amen at your giving of thanks, since he does not understand what you say? All right? You're reading Martin Luther's prayer, okay? And the guy suddenly stops. And you think it must be over, and you say, Amen. And he says, Well, I'm not done. I had a frog in my throat, and I had to. Right? You see what I'm saying? It makes no sense. Paul now changes to the second person for this verse. The last verse was first person. I'm doing this, okay? He is not writing about his practice, but the practice of the congregants at Corinth. He's showing what he desires for those in Corinth in the surrounding verses and contrasting that with what they are actually doing, okay? He just made a conclusion which he desired the Corinthians to emulate. I will pray with the Spirit, and I will also pray with the understanding. I will sing with the Spirit, and I will also sing with understanding. Based on that conclusion, he shows that what they are doing in the church is contrary to it. If they do as he said, there will be understanding. Should they not follow his instruction, the result would be otherwise. And he says, if you bless with the Spirit... How will he who occupies the place of the uninformed say amen at your giving of thanks, since he does not understand what you say? The spirit is the breath of the man, the utterance that he makes. If a person prays, sings, or blesses in a language which is unknown to another, the uninformed, there will be nothing to edify him. And Paul says that everything in the church should be for edification, right? The uninformed is a person who knows neither the language nor the meaning of the words. In other words, if the gospel is spoken in a foreign language to a person, it certainly has meaning, but not to the hearer of the words. We talked about that earlier, right? The people in Corinth, for example, they have people that speak Greek because it's the, the language of the empire. Latin is starting to come into use in the Roman Empire, so there are people that speak that. There are people that speak Hebrew because, you know, the, the Jews were the first ones converted in some of these places. And so there's Hebrew-speaking people. There's Aramaic-speaking people because the lingua franca of Israel at the time was Aramaic. But they used Hebrew for their, you know, their uh, religious rites. Okay, so there are people that might speak that. Then you've got people that know the Laotian, Laodicean dialect over here. And they might be visiting. And so you've got all these different things. And people are sitting there giving the gospel to somebody else and they don't understand what's being said. Who's being edified? Nobody. All right. So you have to have a language which is understandable to the people that are being addressed. That's what he's speaking about. Okay. When Paul said, I think I've already done this first, but I'll say it again just so people know. Paul says, I speak in more tongues than all of you. Right. What's he talking about? Paul spoke certainly Latin. He was an educated Jew. He was a, a Roman citizen. He spoke Greek. No doubt about it. He even wrote in Greek, as we can see from the epistles. He certainly spoke Hebrew. He certainly spoke Aramaic, okay? Because when he spoke to the people, 
in Israel. Remember, he's being arrested and everybody hushed up and he started speaking. He spoke to them in Aramaic. That would have been the language of the people of the land of Israel. Okay. And then he probably spoke uh, the dialect of Tarsus of Cilicia. Okay. So that's at least five or six languages. And he probably knew more than that because he traveled all over the place. So when he says, I speak in more tongues than all of you, he's not speaking about the number of times that he speaks in a foreign language in a church. He's speaking about the number of foreign languages that he speaks. Okay. That's what is being referred to. Known languages that he knows. And why would he speak those to somebody that doesn't understand them? If a prayer for relief is spoken in a foreign language, it does have meaning, no doubt about it, but not to the hearers of the words. For the hearer, then, there is no gospel message. For the hearer, then, there is no prayer of relief. And for the hearer, then, there is no change in the mind. But this is the purpose of words. It is to have an effect on the hearer. Therefore, if the person speaking, or if the person hearing, or both the speaker and the hearer, whichever combination cannot understand the words, there is no point in the words being spoken. Once again, go back to the prayers of Martin Luther that are read in Lutheran churches. Why would you do that? The guy reads them because we can read German. It looks just like English and we can read it pretty well. And the people sitting there, there might be one or two German speaking people. Or there might not be any, but you're sitting here reading this guy's prayer from four, five, six hundred years ago. What good is it? Unless it's translated, what good is it? When we sing, we had uh, Sunday, Martin Luther's song. Come on. What is it, everybody? A Mighty Fortress. We had that here on Sunday. It was the third song that we sang. Did we sing it in German? No. Somebody translated it in English. And they did a good job of it because it actually rhymes and it makes sense. But that's how we sing Martin Luther's song, A Mighty Fortress is Our God. We don't sing it in the German because there's no point in singing it in the German. Nobody is edified if we do that. Okay? Paul's logic here perfectly demonstrates that unknown, ecstatic, or prayer languages, meaning tongues, uttered by charismatics, are fake. As was noted, and I understand if there are people out there that have their own prayer language, I'm not going to argue this with you. That's fine. You believe whatever you want to believe. I am here to evaluate the Bible in the context based on what Paul is saying. If you want to go out and speak these things, go ahead. But it is in violation of what's Paul, what Paul is saying, and it's not real. Okay? If it's not real, then why would you do it? It doesn't make any sense at all. But there you go. As was noted in the commentary in verse 7, there is no language which can be unknown to God because there is nothing that God doesn't know. There can be no words uttered with the intent of edifying him because he knows all. But Paul says that words uttered by a person are to be uttered for the edification of himself or others. If the speaker utters a supposed ecstatic tongue, which means nothing to anyone else, then it has no meaning at all. God does not need edification. Everybody understand that? He doesn't need edification. I think it was you. Somebody here recently, it was. I heard just recently that a person was sitting in a, a, a church for many years and they spoke tongues. And the person would stand up and speak in a supposed tongue for, you know, 10 seconds. And then another person would stand up and translate what he said for 15 minutes. Or That's an exaggeration. But in other words, obviously... That is not what happened there. And the reciprocal was seen as well. Somebody would speak in a tongue for a long time, a big, long message, whoop, clop, whoop, clop, whoop. And then the guy would translate and says, well, he said, it's a nice day. Everybody see you next week. Okay. Obviously that is not what's going on. Okay. Languages don't work that way. 
I've been around this world and I've been to a lot of countries and languages always are very close in the length. You're, you're not going to have something that's this long here and that long here. Now, on Bible commentaries, you might have that. You might have a verse that's this long and you have pages and pages and pages of Bible commentary. That's a different situation. That's not speaking in tongues and that's not translating, okay? But transliteration or translation is usually very close to the same language. So you can see how people make stuff up. People want to hear themselves speak and they will make things up in order to look more spiritual, whatever. Okay, God does not need edification. Without understanding, there can be no amen. And this would be contrary to the purpose of communication within the church because we should say amen at the end of something that has edified us. All right. Life application, thinking through difficult issues, especially when they have been so often misinterpreted by others, is difficult. But this is what we are called to do. We are called to think. And I know thinking is hard. It's tedious. It wears you out. I sit there and I think all day. People send me Bible questions and sometimes it, it gets debilitating. I go, go to bed and I'm very tired because thinking. My dad said that when I was a kid. I remember he came home one day and he said, if I was out working, shoveling ditches, I'd be home, I'd have dinner and I'd be fine. I'd be up and I, I could go again. He says, but when I come home and I've been thinking all day because he was a realtor and he was, you know, had to do a lot of stuff. And he said, I'm exhausted. It doesn't matter. I, and I always remembered. I thought, how can that be? He just sits in an office all day. How can he be tired? I'm telling you, when you think, it takes away everything. It takes away all desires after you've had your meal. You just want to go to bed. But I worked many years in the wastewater business. And there are days where I'd go out and I'd work hard physically all day long. And I'd be tired. Oh, my body hurts. And I go home, take a shower, eat, and I was ready to go out. I, I could go the rest of the night. No problem. I can't do that anymore. I'm thinking. I'm done. Eight o'clock. Don't call after that because I'll be in bed. Then the phone won't be where I am. So I'm not going to hear it anyway. I just, uh, I'm done. Okay. 1417. Here we go. For you indeed give thanks well, but the other is not edified. This verse really should be taken in conjunction with the previous one in order to understand what he's saying. So I'm going to read you in both. Okay. Otherwise, if you bless with the spirit, how will he who occupies the place of the uninformed say amen at your giving of thanks since he does not understand what you say? For you indeed give thanks well, but the other is not edified. Sure enough, if someone says the Eucharist in another language, Hebrew perhaps, he's indeed giving thanks in a good and an appropriate way. God hears the words, understands them, and receives them as intended. This is a good thing in some sense. However, those who are in the congregation and don't understand Hebrew are not edified. At the superior word, and I've already said it twice, but I'll read my commentary anyway, the Lord's Supper is taken every single Sunday. The words of Paul which provide the instruction for the Lord's Supper are read aloud from 1 Corinthians chapter 11. However, a blessing in Hebrew is pronounced over them as well. If this were all that occurred, God would have received his praise and thanks, but none in the congregation would be edified, and so the words are repeated in English for the edification of the congregation. Baruch atah Adonai Eloheinu melech haolam hamotzilechem min haaretz. Blessed art thou, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who brings forth bread from the earth. And then we say the uh, blessing over the wine as well. Baruch Blessed art thou, O Lord our God, King of the universe, creator 
of the fruit of the vine. And if you listen long enough, and you know the first sentence of the Bible, for example, you know it says, Bereshit bara Elohim. That second word, bara, means created. Well, bore is similar to bara. You hear that? So you've got that, you've made a mental connection. Bara is create, bore is create. The, who created the fruit of the vine. And so you're starting to learn Hebrew because you're making these mental connections. That's what happens when you go to another country. If you live there long enough, I lived in Japan six years, almost to the day. Then after a very short amount of time, because I lived off the base, I lived in a house out with no Americans anywhere. And all we had was Japanese TV and the neighbors all spoke Japanese. And within just no time at all, you're speaking Japanese and you can speak it rather well to them. And then what I would do is like we have, uh, do we still do it? Florida license plate used to have a number, I'm sorry, a letter in front of it, like F, uh, or we had a number, 16 was Sarasota, but there, anyway, and I'm trying to think of a comparable one here in, in America, but in Japan, they would have a symbol, one of the letters from the hiragana alphabet to start all of their uh, license plates, okay? And then they would have the name of the prefecture or the town that you're living in, whatever, in the kanji, which is much more complicated. Japanese has four written languages. And if you don't know them all, you're not gonna read anything in the newspaper because you have to know them all. So the way that I would learn is, I'd say, Hidako, what is that character? The one character, and she'd say, that's wa. And then we get to another one, it's, that one is do or whatever, okay? Dadi do de do, sazi zu ze zo. You just, you're looking at these. And so eventually I start making a mental connection. And then you have the, like I said, the name of the town, Tachikawa. Well, it's easy to make a connection because the Tachi on here looks like a garbage can. That just looks like a little garbage can. And then next to it are three lines that look like a river. So we would call it the garbage river. So you'd make a mental connection. This is Tachikawa. Then you get on the train and you're, there's nothing in English, but you see this sign, garbage can with a river, and you know you're going in the right direction. You see what I'm saying? You pick it up very quickly. That's, that's why I like to do this in the church, is to give the Hebrew and explain it, especially if it's going to be complicated, because you are going to pick this up. And eventually, you're going to start making these mental connections. Some people never will, because we don't do enough of it here. But that's what I'm trying to say, is that you will pick these things up. Bore, bara. You've made a mental connection there. Okay, anyway. Without the translation, speaking of what I just read about the, uh, the uh, blessing, without the translation, there is no edification. With it, the congregation will, week by week, begin to understand these Hebrew words. Elaine walked up to me one day and she said, I can almost say it. This was about a year or two ago. She says, every time you say it, I can remember everything you're saying, but I can't get it out of my mouth fast enough. Well, that's what happens. Eventually, you're sitting there and you will be able to repeat that as well. I just, you know what? It's just edifying if you know it and you can repeat it and then you can teach it to somebody else. Whatever. Okay. They may even develop a desire to learn the language as well. Thus, the tongue serves a valid purpose. Okay. My friend, I told you he's going to Japan. He's been there a couple times. His son is stationed there and he ordered the Rosetta Stone Japanese. I don't know if you remember, I said this a couple weeks ago. I said, well, if he had emailed me, he could have gotten the uh, Pimsleur course from me because I got that. Well, he emailed and he says, I cannot understand the Rosetta Stone. It doesn't work for me. And I said, if you want, I'll send you the Japanese course, which it went into the mail two days ago. He should receive it in a day or two or three days, whatever, however long it takes. USPS, it might be 20 years. Anyway, um, but he'll try that. And I think he'll be able to at least pronounce better. It's a very, very good way of learning to pronounce languages. 
okay? It's rote learning. You're not going to be able to have a conversation with them because they're going to say something different in a different way than what you have learned. That's not the point of it. The Pimsleur courses are to help you pronounce, and they will also give you some uh, reading and written instructions on some of the courses, okay? But I do recommend it. I've never tried Rosetta Stone. I can't tell you. But all I know is that if you like learning languages, there are avenues to do it, and you will always be blessed. The way, the way that I think about languages is this. Who developed the languages? God did, right? Genesis chapter 11. So you are pursuing the mind of God when you get into languages because he developed them. And they continue to be developed today. No surprise to God because he's the one that invented it and he's the one that allows it to be modified. And so it doesn't matter if it's a new language. It is still something that came from the mind of God, even if it was issued through a man because he developed the procedure for making languages work. And I'm going to give you an example just so you understand the Korean language. It looks kind of like Japanese or Chinese. It looks like a hard to learn. That is the simplest language that you will ever learn to read. And I'm not kidding when I say that. If you want to learn to read the Korean language, it is simple. It is so simple, okay? But it looks really hard when you first look at it until you learn the mechanics of it. Now, I wanted to learn it because I was attending a Korean church right down the road for three years. And I went online and I went to site after site after site, and it was the most complicated. How am I ever going to learn this? Nothing made any sense. And guess what? A Jewish guy developed. He went over to Korean. He liked the language, and so he developed how to learn Korean. And you can learn to read Korean in about two days because he understands the mechanics. The great king, say John, is the one that developed the language. It is so simple that when you learn the basic mechanics, all you need to do after that is learn the characters. And... The characters just fit right together into little boxes. So it looks like Chinese. It has nothing to do with Chinese. It is simple, okay? But that is from the mind of God because he's the one that developed the language and he's the one that has given the wisdom of how languages work. So please, if you want to learn something valuable, don't watch a bunch of movies on TV. Learn a language or more important, learn your Bible. I'm telling you, you will be, you will be blessed. Anyway, that's just my little plug because I love languages. Okay, life application. In the church, everything should be done with the thought of bringing edification to others. And I will add into that, that's kind of a short life application and bringing glory to God. I'll add that in there. Verse 14, 18. I thank my God I speak with tongues more than you all. Here it is. Okay, this is the one I thought I'd already talked about that, but I hadn't. For the most of the past 17 verses, Paul has been speaking of coherent sounds which form understandable languages, not gobbledygook. There is no chance then that he now departs from this in order to say something pertaining to unintelligible noises, which would ecstatically roll off of his tongue. And by the way, does anybody here not know what gobbledygook means? We all do, right? It's a big word. Somebody made it. They put it together and we all understood that. Everybody was edified. Okay. I, I just had to stop there because I want to make sure everybody got that and you did. All right. So um, he's not going to be speaking of some crazy thing that won't edify anybody else okay so to paul edification is the main intent of any word spoken and i think that i'm what verse am i doing right now i'm still reading no i'm doing 18 yep okay i just wanted to make sure i wasn't putting the wrong thing down to paul edification is the main intent of any word spoken in the church understanding this we can know that he is not referring to anything similar to the nonsense which is uttered in charismatic churches today it will be something that is understandable ecstatic tongues, prayer languages, and so on. 
nor is he referring to the number of times that he speaks in foreign languages in a church. Rather, he is speaking of known languages that he has acquired, most of which the other congregants would not understand. Paul would have to, and I'm going to go through this list again. I, I, I thought we'd already talked about this, but he would have to know Hebrew. He would have learned it in his rabbinical training and used it in synagogues. Who was he trained under? Gamaliel. Gamaliel, thank you. He would have known Aramaic, the lingua franca of the land of Israel at his time. He would have known Greek, the standard language of the Roman Empire at his time. He also probably knew Latin, a language which was growing in ascendancy during his time. He was raised in Tarsus of Cilicia, and there was probably a dialect in that area that he grew up with. In addition to this, he was a tent maker, and he moved around as he shared the gospel. He probably learned many local dialects as he traveled. In all, his words in this verse are certainly true. He was a man of many languages, and for this he thanked his God. It made him a useful tool in the spreading of the message, the important message, the most important message ever entrusted to man. You can see my dyslexia getting in, in the way there. I read message and then important and then most important. Happens all the time. I'm sorry. I, I When I read things, my eyes go backwards all the time. Life application. Tongues are known languages. When speaking in the church, use a tongue which is known to all. Verse 14 19. Yet in the church, I would rather, here he goes, this is where it starts getting good. I would rather speak five words in my understanding that I may teach others also than 10,000 words in a tongue. Oh, that people would simply read the Bible. How does the church wander into such strange and unbiblical doctrines? If we would but open the word of God and without presuppositions read and apply it to our lives, we wouldn't prohibit certain foods. We wouldn't mandate certain days for Sabbath observance. And we wouldn't act childish as we applied our tongues to the wind in an incoherent manner. Paul's words in this verse are so obvious that they appear to need no commentary at all. And yet, they have been so utterly ignored that commentary is needed. He begins with yet. This is the Greek word Allah, A-L-L-A, which indicates a contrast meaning something like but. The contrast is in relation to what he just said. I thank my God I speak with more tongues than you all yet. Paul speaks spoke many languages, but at Corinth it would be pointless for him to speak some of them. Most Corinthians probably didn't speak Aramaic. His home dialect of Tarsus would be unknown to them as well. Other than any learned Jews present, none of them would know Hebrew. Despite knowing such languages, it would make no sense for him to come in and start speaking in any of them. Their voice would have no meaning to the people in Corinth. Without meaning, he would be simply wasting his time by speaking them. And so he tells them that in the church, meaning whatever location the group gathered to meet, not a building, but a gathering, he says that he would rather speak five words with my understanding that I may teach others than 10,000 words in a tongue. The word five, the words five and 10,000 are used in a superlative sense. It would be like the modern phrase one in a million. In other words, he is telling them of the utter absurdity of speaking in a language that nobody understands. It is completely pointless and it is wasted breath. If there's no edification, the words would only be a distraction. 
This is the force and the intent of Paul's words. So how is it that churches have so far departed from what is plain, clear, and obvious? It is because the word of God, which is given for our instruction, is either completely ignored or it is selectively taken apart and divided up to meet the agenda of the reader. And that's a very sad thing because the word of God is the most precious gift that we will ever be given in this life. Christ is our Lord. The gift of salvation through Christ's blood is explained in the Bible. It's not going to come to you any other way. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. We have all that we need for our life, doctrine, and practice in this book. Okay? Where do we go to get those things? Out, lick our finger and hold it up in the wind? I mean, do we go to the movie theater and watch a movie and decide who we're going to marry or what type of a person we want? No. We go to the Word of God if we are wise and discerning. All right? What a shame. What sad consequences there will be for those who so abuse this precious gift of God. Let us not be found in such an unhappy position when we stand before him for our rewards and losses. Hello there, Mr. Garrett. How are you today? Somebody's just getting off work late, I see. Life application. There are many issues in the Bible which are difficult to understand and which result in various opinions concerning doctrine. I understand that. These require much deeper analysis in order to grasp. However, there are issues which are clear and precise and which should be so obvious to anyone who simply takes them at face value. The way to do this is to reject presuppositions and to allow the Lord's word to fill them with their plainly understood message. In such cases, drop all presuppositions and be a vessel prepared for pure doctrine. Okay, I'm going to give you an example of what I just said. We come to the Bible and we say, well, you know, my doctrine on this is this, or my doctrine on this is that. I was talking to somebody at mission work this past Saturday, and she was saying that she has a sister that doesn't believe in the rapture. And I said, that has to be trained into you. It has to be. You might not know the doctrine of the rapture, pre-trib, post-trib, mid-trib. I mean, that takes study. But I'm going to just stop right here in 1 Corinthians 15, 14. I'm going to take you to 1 Corinthians 15. And I'm going to read you some words. I don't want you to have any presupposition in your head at all. Everything that you think you know about the rapture, I just want you to completely ignore. And just listen to the words and think what Paul is saying. Okay? He says, um, let me see if I can find it here. Yeah, we're going to start at verse 45. And so it is written, the first man, Adam, being a living being, the last Adam became a life-giving spirit. That's pretty clear. First Adam, there's a last Adam. If you know who he's talking about, that's not complicated, okay? Adam in Christ, all right? However, the spiritual is not first, but the natural, and afterward, the spiritual. The first man was of the earth, made of the dust. If you know the Bible, you know that's right in the book of Genesis. All you have to do is go look at it and refresh yourself, okay? So also are those who are made of dust. And as is the heavenly man, so also are those who are heavenly. So we have men of dust and we have heavenly men. There's a difference, okay? You left out the last part of 47. Okay, i got to go back and read 47. The first man was of the earth, the man of dust. The second man is the Lord from heaven. Okay, gotcha. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are made of dust. That means we're all like Adam, every one of us. What's going to happen if I die today? What's going to happen to me? I'm going to return to dust. Exactly. That's exactly what's going to happen because I am physical. I'm a physical being that was created out of the dust by my, or actually my first father was, and I'm a descendant of him. That's what's going to happen. 
As was a man of the dust, so also are those who are made of dust. As is the heavenly man, so also are those who are heavenly. Well, we've been told already in our doctrine in the book of Romans that Christ died for our sins, right? We know that, and we move to Christ, and we become in Christ, all right? That doesn't change our nature right now, though. But I'm just going to keep reading. I want you to just tell me what part of this people can't understand. And as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the heavenly man. I think everybody, I don't care if they're Reformed theologians or whatever, they all get that. Everybody gets what he just said. We're going to be like Christ, okay? Now this I say, brethren. Here it comes. This is the rapture verses, and just tell me if you don't see it. This I say, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does corruption inherit incorruption. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep. That means we shall not all die. That's, I'm going to explain that so you know. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. Everybody got that? In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised and we shall be changed. For this corruptible must put on incorruption and this mortal must put on immortality. Anybody that reads that for the first time is going to believe that there is going to be a moment in history where believers are going to be changed. Can anybody see anything differently there? If you read that without being told before you read it, what it says, you would say, I know what that says. I may not understand it, but I know what it says. It says at the last trumpet. Well, I don't know what is the last trumpet. There's lots of trumpets. I've read the Bible and there's trumpet here and there. Okay, that takes study. But the fact that we are going to be changed is obvious, plain on the surface. Okay, knowing that, we can now go to the next set of rapture verses. And this is why I tell you, if people would just simply read the Bible instead of listening to people, read the Bible when you get up in the morning. If you have time at lunch, read it at night. This is the only thing that is going to give you sound doctrine. You might learn sound doctrine from somebody teaching this, but this is what's going to give you that doctrine. That person may or may not teach sound doctrine, but he's teaching doctrine from this. You need to know this before you listen to him. Because if you don't know this, why do you think there are Jehovah's Witnesses? Why do you think there are Mormons? Why do you think that there are Seventh-day Adventists? Why? Not from reading their Bible. Not from reading their Bible first. That's exactly right. They have not read their Bible, but they're trained now. And now they start reading their Bible and they've been trained first. What do you think is going to happen? They're going to read that with what is called a presupposition. I've got my mind made up that there's no rapture. And so I will never read those verses the same again. If you don't know this word, you are consigning yourself to whatever somebody is teaching you, including me right now. And I could be wrong. The best thing for you to do is to read this morning, noon, and night. There's What else do you have to do in your life? You tell me. You guys just, they drove all the way from Arkansas to be here for the Bible class tonight. Okay, 14 hours yesterday, 27 hours today. That's not true, but it was a lot of hours today. Okay, now I'm going to put her on the spot. Did he drive or did you? Okay, he drove most of the way. Did you read the Bible while you were coming down here? She had the Bible open. Okay, so I, I was going to put her on the spot and she did what she should be doing. What are you going to do with your empty time? What are you going to do with it? Because when you are taught this before knowing this, you are going to believe what you were taught. You want to believe that angels slept with men and made Nephilim? 
That's what you're going to believe if you were taught that first. And if you want to believe that it is the sons of God are the line of Adam and the sons of men are not the line of Adam, then that's what you're going to believe if you were taught that first. You are going to believe that. And it takes a great mental leap to get out of whatever you believe, to find that you're correct or incorrect in your believing. Okay? There are other views on those verses, but that's the two prominent ones. Which one do you believe and why? Okay? Here we go. This is the second set of rapture verses. We're going to go to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, and he says here, we've already know that it's very clear you're going to be changed at the trumpet. The trumpet's going to sound, the dead in Christ are going to rise, and the people are going to be changed in the twinkling of an eye. Here we go. But I do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning those who have fallen asleep. Once again, he's speaking about people who are asleep. They're falling asleep, meaning they're D-E-D, -D, dead, okay? <laughs> Ed plus D is dead. I stand by it. Okay, for if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, which that's been talked in your, taught in your doctrine as you've gone through the Bible, I read about Jesus and he died and he came out of the grave. You know that. If we believe that, even so God will bring with him those who sleep in Jesus. That means people who are in Jesus are dead in Jesus. He's going to bring those with him. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who are asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and thus we shall always be with the Lord. You read those verses, at face value, without having been taught something in advance, you will come to no other conclusion than what it says. You will not come to another conclusion. You will say, the Lord is going to come from heaven. He's going to shout the voice of an archangel, the trumpet of God, which he referenced in 1 Corinthians 15. The dead in Christ are going to rise first. And then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord near. You will not believe anything other than that unless you have it trained into you first okay you see there are people that don't believe in a rapture they, don't, they say it's not going to happen that had to be trained into them if they believe that this is the word of god if you believe this is the word of god you will read those verses and you'll say i may not understand the sequence still i might not know which trumpet he's talking about i may, might not know about what does it mean when he comes because i've read in the old testament he's coming in one way but he's coming in another here and so you have to learn what that means but reading those verses as they are written, you will come to no other conclusion that this is something that Paul has written at the word of the Lord, and it will come to pass. You see? But there are people that do not believe in a rapture. Why? Because it was trained into them, and they did not know what this word said first. Put their faith in a man's teaching. That's right. They put their faith in a man's teaching. And that's why I, I'm not bragging. I'm just simply telling you that when I met the Lord, I sat in... Just the fact of, I sat in my store right down the road. You all been to the restaurant with me. You know where it is. I sat in that 10 hours a day and I read this word. And it takes 72, about 72 hours to read the Bible. Or I'm sorry, listen to an uh, um, audio Bible. That's 70 hours, okay? If you listen to an audio Bible, you can have it done 30 minutes a day. That's all. 30 minutes a day, you will be done with an audio Bible in a half a year, okay? 
in a year, you should be able to finish it twice, just 30 minutes a day. Now, if you're reading and you read much faster than you listen normally, okay, I, I don't know about all of you, but I know I read a lot faster than the audio Bible, okay? I read it 10 hours a day. I read it every single day for two years. You do the math, and I had no theological instruction at all. I just read what it says. And then I finally started to watch TV. I finally started to listen to people. I said, you know, I never thought about that because this word is so big. But I'll tell you one thing that that did for me. When I heard something that wasn't right, I already knew it. I already knew it because I knew the word. And that's why I'm telling you, read this word and take everything that you hear in this class or anywhere else on TV with a grain of salt until you know what this word says, because you are accountable. Every one of you is going to stand before the Lord and you are going to be given a reward or a loss for everything that you have done, including what you believed. Everything. What else do you have to do with your life? You tell me. What else do you have to do with your life? Okay, we're going to go on. We're in uh, verse 20. Verse 20, 14, 20. Brethren, do not be children in understanding. However, in malice, be babes. But in understanding, be mature. In the previous verse, Paul told the Corinthians that he would rather speak five intelligible words for edification than 10,000 in a tongue. Based on this, he tells those at Corinth, and thus to us, because this is in the Bible, to not be children in understanding. Okay, people will say that's a contradiction from what Jesus said. Unless you become like children, you will no wise enter the kingdom. That, that completely different concept, okay? What is he speaking about when he says, unless you become like children? Faith. You give a child a glass of water with arsenic in it, and you say, here, drink this. They, they're going to have faith, and they're going to drink it right down. Guess what? The Nazis in Germany, the ones that were close, Goebbels, I think it was. That's what they did to their children. They committed suicide, but they killed all five or six of their children before they committed suicide, okay? Finally, the mother and father shot themselves. Or I, I don't remember. I think the father shot himself after. Anyway, they all took poison, and they poisoned their own children. You give a child something, and they're going to believe you. That is what Jesus is speaking about, faith. You will not enter the kingdom of heaven unless you come as a little child. He's speaking about faith. Be like a little child in faith. But then he told us elsewhere to be wise as snakes, right? Okay? Innocent as doves and wives as snakes or something. He's saying that as a general principle. Okay, I know that's speaking to the people in Israel under the law, but he's giving a point there. Okay, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven unless you enter like a little child. You're only going to get there through faith. You're not going to get through through works or any other way. Okay, and you understand the principle about a child though. They're innocent and they will trust an adult. That's why it's so sad when people take advantage of children. They do these things because children are easy to take advantage of. Well, he's not speaking about that here. So we'll go on. You get the point though. I don't wanna, uh, anyway, um, don't be children in understanding. In other words, their use of tongues was self-centered, attention-seeking and childish. That's exactly what it was. There was no edification of others. There was only an immature display of, look at me. Instead of hoping for growth in others, there was only hope for fame and applause. Thus their actions are to be considered childish. The word translated as understanding is different than the word found in 1 Corinthians 14, 15. Here the Greek word is friend. It is used twice in this verse and nowhere else in the New Testament. It indicates the inner parts of a person, specifically the midriff. It is where our English word diaphragm comes from. 
As the diaphragm regulates breathing, it is an exceptional choice of wording for this particular issue of tongues. As the diaphragm regulates breath, and it is the breath which then goes on to produce sounds, Paul must have decided on friend as a sort of play on words, tying understanding in with tongues. It denotes reasoning power on the reflective side rather than on the intellectual side. In contrast to thinking like children concerning tongues, when they should be thinking like adults, he says that they actually should have such an attitude in the area of malice. In malice, they should be as babes. Because he's using malice in contradistinction to their attitude concerning tongues, it indicates that he viewed their reasoning behind the use of tongues as malicious. If edification wasn't the intent of the tongues, then there was something darker behind their use. Division and one-upmanship. And remember what we started this epistle on and we've been talking about through the entire epistle. Division. That has been his main point all the way through his dialogue in 1 Corinthians. Division. Paul viewed this as malicious and he is asking them to consider their ways. In order to do this, he finishes this thought with, but in understanding, be mature. There are three categories in this verse, babes, which is infants, children, and the fully grown. In malice, because of their inappropriate use of tongues, Paul desires them to be as mere infants. And concerning tongues as a gift, he desires them to grow up from infancy into mature adults by seeking higher gifts. In doing so, they will be grown up in their understanding, in their friend, in using their diaphragms for edification rather than ostentation, they will become adult believers who are useful to the body, not harmful and divisive in the body. Life application, even the inner parts of our bodies should be used in a mature manner, bringing edification to others and glory to God. All the way through the Bible, you read about the heart, you read about the, you don't read about the brains, you never hear that in the Bible, but you hear about the heart, you hear about the, you know, the, the bowels. The, you know, there's a word in the New Testament that speaks about the bowels, and you got the liver and the kidney, and all of these things have actual meaning that is consistent all the way through the Bible. When you hear the heart, it's always thinking, it's always referring to the understanding of man. It's not ever used in the sense of the beating heart, ever. And yet that's what the word the heart, lev in Hebrew and in uh, uh, Greek, it's cardia. And it's never speaking about the pumping organ. It's always speaking about the understanding of man. You follow those uses in the Bible and you will understand what the internal organ is. And listen, God is the one that created us with these things. So it tells us that there is an analogy that he is making, just like everything else, the rock, the water, you know, the sun, everything has a purpose and a point in the Bible. And it will always be used in a consistent manner. Always. You come to grapes, you're going to have a, the grape harvest. What do you think of when you think of the grape harvest? Wine. Wine, but what do you think of in the, the harvest of the grape itself? It's always the same in the Bible. The grape harvest is the harvest of wrath. Why? Because what do they do after they harvest the grapes? They stomp on them. That's right. Go through the Bible and think about that when you're reading about the grape harvest. And you'll see that the grapes, you know, at the end of the book of Revelation and the, the wine coming out of the wine press. Yes, now wine will have a different symbolism. It's a part of the grape, but that's not what it's speaking of. The wine is the uh, mixing of cultural influences, the thing that can happen 
may happen because of the wine. If you look at all of these different things that are in the Bible, they will always be consistent. Okay, now some things will have more than one meaning. Water obviously has several meanings. You have to infer from the surrounding context. But read the Bible with an understanding that God created every single one of those things, and he's teaching us lessons when he uses them. He's the creator. He's infinitely wise. He's done it for a purpose. So understand what's going on inside of your body, and you'll understand what God is trying to tell you about what's going on in the spiritual world as well. Okay, 1421. In the law it is written, with men of other tongues and other lips. Here you go. Other tongues and other lips. Is he speaking about anything other than a known language when he cites this verse? No. He absolutely is speaking only of a known language. With men of other tongues and other lips, I will speak to this people, and yet for all that, they will not hear me. Isaiah was not speaking about people rolling around on the floor in charismatic churches when he said those words. He was speaking about people from other languages and tongues who would be informing Israel, okay? Paul now turns to scripture itself to support his words concerning the use of tongues. He says here, in the law it is written. Generally, the books of the law are considered the five books of Moses from Genesis to Deuteronomy. But in a broader sense, even though Isaiah is a part of the writings known as the prophets, he notes that it is a part of the law. The reason for this is that the entire time from the giving of the law until the establishment of the new covenant in Christ's blood is considered the time of the law. Thus, Isaiah's writings are considered as the law in this wider sense. His quote is from Isaiah 28. However, his citing is not an exact quote, but rather the imparting of the general sense of the words. I'll take you there and I'll read it to you. Isaiah 28. And it's verses 11 and 12. He says, For with the stammering lips and another tongue he will speak to this people, to whom he said, This is the rest with which you may cause the weary to rest, and this is the refreshing. Yet they would not hear. Both Isaiah and Paul clearly indicate that real languages spoken by real people are being used. Further, Isaiah is specifically speaking of the coming of the Assyrians. These people were not of the covenant line and would not be speaking the tongue as a gift of the spirit, but rather as their normal language. In other words, Paul is once again referring to a known language, which is not understood by the hearers. He's not referring to an ecstatic tongue or some type of prayer language. Further, the Bible never speaks of or hints at these concepts ever. You will not find it in there. And if you have a verse you think speaks about it, you're wrong. We'll go through it eventually, or we have gone through it already. Go back and watch that study. I assure you, there's nothing that refers to those in the Bible. A couple other examples of what Paul is referring to can be found, for example, in Deuteronomy chapter 28. We'll take you there. And it says there, oops, Exodus comes before Deuteronomy, Charlie. Let's see here, Deuteronomy 28, and we'll go to verse 49. And it says, the Lord will bring a nation against you from afar, from the end of the earth, as swift as the eagle flies, a nation whose language you will not understand. And then we go to the book of Jeremiah. And he says this in Jeremiah 5, verse 15. We're almost there, folks. 5, verse 15. Behold, I will bring a nation against you from afar. O house of Israel, says the Lord, it is a mighty nation. It is an ancient nation, a nation whose language you do not know, nor can you understand what they say. 
Paul's quoting of Isaiah, as well as the other Old Testament references, show that show us that because the people wouldn't listen to the loving words of the Lord, which they understood, he would speak to them in harsh words by a people whom they didn't understand. Paul will explain the purpose of this in the next verse. Life application, the words of scripture are given to the world for our edification and instruction. We have them translated into our language for this purpose, and we are to apply them to our lives, not ignore them. Let us therefore cherish these precious words and let them guide our steps at all times. Once again, you can't do that unless you know what it says. And as Sai noted a couple minutes ago, those people that are in the Jehovah's Witnesses are there because they heard somebody say something about the Bible and they had no idea what the Bible said. That's very sad. You know, I know people that were Presbyterians that went over to the Jehovah's Witness because they never got the gospel in the Presbyterian church. They never opened the Bible in the Presbyterian church. And you go to the Jehovah's Witness and guess what they do? They open that Bible. They read right from it. But they've already been told before they ever get into the Kingdom Hall of Jehovah's Witnesses what they are to believe. And so when they get to the passages that speak of Jesus being God, they just read right over it because they've been trained that way. It's so sad what happens in these churches around America. I don't, I, Susan Garrett, I don't ever remember them opening the Bible in the Episcopal Church growing up, ever. If they did, I don't remember it being read. Go ahead. Oh, their readings. Uh, their yeah, their readings. Uh, Old Testament, New Testament. Uh, I do remember that, but, but I don't remember as far as an explanation of those passages. There was nothing. You know what I'm saying? They'd read it. It would be just one thing with no context. There would be, you know, so once again, if you don't know the Bible, if that's all you heard and they start telling you, well, this means that's what you're going to believe. That's what they do have. The, the church is very active in Bible studies now. Now. Some churches are. Some, some churches. No. Okay. Well, anyway, I wouldn't go to Episcopal Church on a dime or on a bet or whatever the, the thing is. I wouldn't do it because their money and the support that they have all goes up to the pervert palace up there. I don't care what Episcopal Church you belong to. The money that goes to that church goes up to fund their agenda up at the main headquarters. That's the same with all of these churches. They all are under a hierarchy and that money is being used for wicked purposes. That's just, I, I wouldn't do it. And like I said, the Southern Baptist Convention is starting to go that road. And I hope that people will stop this because there are people that are infecting that. They've got blogs out there that they publish things on that are, you know, we're Southern Baptists and we're, you know, disagreeing with it. And here's what we want to have our agenda. And they're, they're getting these things out just like they do in all these other denominations. And they're tearing these things apart. Not that I agree with the Southern Baptists on a thousand different points of view anyway, because there are things that, you know, they have the, if you go into some of these older Southern Baptist churches, they've got this writing up on the wall. Have you ever seen that in there? That, you know, we believe this, 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 and this, and 17 of them are wrong. They're not even biblical. So, you know, I mean, whatever. Stick to the Bible. Know the Bible. That's what I'm trying to say. Okay. So, um, verse 14, 22. Therefore, tongues are for a sign, not to those who believe, but to unbelievers. But prophesying is not for unbelievers, but for those who believe. Therefore, comes as a result of everything Paul has said to this point concerning tongues. His final note thus far, which is included in this, but to which therefore is not limited, was a quote from Isaiah concerning the speaking of a foreign language to the Jewish people who had refused to hear and pay heed to the word of the Lord in the language that they knew. 
Such a tongue, a known but foreign language, is for a sign, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1, verse 22. Let me take you back there. 1 Corinthians 1, verse, it's been a while since we were in chapter 1, so I'm, okay, for Jews request a sign, sign that's right, but Greeks seek after wisdom. Okay, the Jews needed a sign, and they were given that sign. It came at Pentecost, and it was spoken in all the languages of those present at the time. That This display was for the benefit, not to those who believe, but to unbelievers. Only God could cause the words of a group of men who didn't speak the language of the hearers present to have their voices speak in a tongue they understood. It was a validation of the religion which the disciples already professed that was based on the person and work of Jesus, the gospel that he proclaimed and which they continued to proclaim. Therefore, churches, and there are many of them, that claim that tongues are an initial evidence of Holy Spirit baptism have fundamentally misunderstood both the purpose of tongues and the sealing of the Spirit because it's totally contrary to what Paul teaches right here. If a person is already a believer, they are sealed with the Spirit and saved. What verse is that, anybody? Ephesians 1.13. Ephesians 1.13 and 14. That's, let's go there so that you don't think I made that up. Ephesians 1.13 and 14. Galatians, Philippians, Ephesians. Okay, here we go. 1.13 and 14. In him, in Jesus, in him, you also trusted. After you heard the word of truth, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. The gospel of your salvation, in whom also having believed, here it is, this, this cannot be any simpler, and I don't know how charismatics can ignore this. After having believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. When you believed, it was done. You were sealed. You have the Holy Spirit, okay, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession to the praise of his glory. Not ours, of his glory. So that's it. You're done. You've got the Holy Spirit. You have been sealed. Okay? Now, where was I? Holy Spirit, if a person is already a believer, they are sealed with the Spirit and saved. As tongues are assigned not to believers, but to unbelievers, it is obviously that the false tongues they speak are simply ostentatious displays, bordering on that which is ludicrous. Understanding the purpose of tongues, Paul next contrasts that to prophesying. He notes that as tongues are assigned to unbelievers, prophesying is not for unbelievers, but for those who believe. To prophesy is to take the word of God and to explain it and declare it in a coherent, reasonable manner. As we've gone through this a couple times already in this passage, there are two types of prophecy. One I do not believe is still in use today. That is foretelling. Thus says the Lord. You get immediate revelation from God. You turn around and you tell it to the people or you write it down or whatever God tells you to do. I do not believe that that type of revelation, if you do, that's fine. We can disagree on that. I do not believe that that is one, necessary, and two, it's actually harmful to the operation of the church. There has not been one supposed prophecy in the past 2,000 years that has added anything to the word of God. Not one. So why would we have that? That is foretelling. Isaiah, was given a message on the way out of the door after seeing King Hezekiah. He says, you're going to die. He walks out there. Hezekiah prays to the Lord. The Lord listens and gives him 15 more years. And what does Isaiah do? He turns around in the courtyard, having get, gotten a foretelling prophecy, and he walks back to Hezekiah and he says, guess what? 
the Lord has given you 15 more years. Big mistake for him, but he did it anyway. He, he conceded to the man's desires, and it turned out to be a disaster in many, many ways. But it also fulfilled the Lord's purposes for the people of Israel. Manasseh. What's that? Yeah, Manasseh was born in those 15 years. Unbelievable. So there you go. You know, if the Lord says you're going to die, put your house in order, just say yes and be done with it. All right? Be done with it. Okay, so, um, yeah, if someone doesn't believe the, that the Bible is the Word of God, then all the explanation, oh, here, let me read that again. To prophesy is to take the Word of God and explain it and declare it in a coherent, reasonable manner. If someone doesn't believe that the Bible is the Word of God, then all of the explanation of Scripture in the world will have no effect on the purpose. So that's why he says it's assigned to believers and not to unbelievers, vice versa with the tongues, okay? When the tongues came down in Acts chapter 2, who was converted? What type of Jews? Unbelievers. It was a sign for unbelievers. Oh my gosh, the word is being confirmed. All the nations of the world are hearing these languages. This must be a true thing. Unbelievers. And then when you're a believer, then you go to the prophesying. Okay? Only after they have accepted that it is what it claims to be, meaning the word of God, it makes any sense to proclaim it to that person. But once a person comes to believe in Christ, they then have a basis for hearing the word explained to them. They will have the desire to know him, hopefully, to learn what he commands and to be, even more hopefully, obedient to those commands. A sign then is validation for something which is as yet unknown. In this case, belief. Prophesying is an edification of something which is known. So you understand the logic and the, the problem with the charismatic churches? They stand up there and they say, I've gotten a word from the Lord. And they start speaking in a tongue and somebody comes up and translates it. And they're speaking to who? Believers or supposed believers. That is exactly the opposite of what Paul says. It's exactly the opposite. And therefore, it cannot be of the Spirit of God. It cannot be because the Bible will not contradict God because the Bible is given by inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Everybody understand the logic? It cannot be of God if somebody does these things. If a tongue, uh, let me read this again. A sign is validation for something which is yet unknown. In this case, belief. Prophesying is an edification of something which is known. If tongues are a sign in hopes of belief, then they would, then why would they be spoken in a church which is intended as a place of edification? It makes no sense. Paul will explain this in the next two verses. Once again, though, there's a difference. We've already gone through it with Paul's other words. When I am giving you the Hebrew during a sermon, there's a reason for it, which is for edification. Because now you can say, I understand why this translation says this, and this one does this, and this commentary is completely different than this commentary. It's because these words are very complicated. We're going to get one right at the end. The last verse this week, 2831. I got, I'll say this again in the sermon so you can sleep during the introduction. But I, I did the sermon like I normally do. It went really quickly until I got to the last verse. And it was, I'm telling you, that is a complicated verse. Is uh, you'll Watch the sermon, you'll know what I had to do to get it figured out. But we did get it figured out. It'll be all right in the end. And the analysis is correct, okay? But it took a lot, a lot of study. There's been a couple sermons, I've said it during the sermon, where the first verse would take me two or three hours. And I think, I've got another 14 verses to finish this passage, and it's already 10 o'clock in the morning. I've been typing since three o'clock and I got all this to go. How am I going to be done? You know, but the Lord always fits it in. He always fits it in. 
but you, you get worried when you have to spend that much time on a single verse and you're just already tired and you think I've got to go through all this and then he gives you a lot of you know donuts on the way it's just very easy the rest of the way he just throws one in there to make sure you're you're paying attention anyway okay life application we got oh we got to finish right now the gathering together of the saints is for the edification of those saints if unbelievers come in among them they need to see order not disorder they need to see people being edified not stupefied let us consider this as we gather okay we gotta say a prayer and we gotta close I, I, that ended just perfectly i wasn't looking at the clock today like i should have been and so we could have gone long the reason why i can't go long is because if i do it causes the guy that does the podcast extra work if it goes one minute over one hour and 30 minutes he's got extra work to do and i don't want to do that to him so heavenly father we thank you for this wonderful treasure it is just absolutely marvelous and we thank you that we can know what is right and what is wrong in our doctrine by simply knowing your word first. So my prayer today is that every single person, not just here, but that is online or that will watch this in the days ahead will say, yeah, you know, I really need to know this Bible so that I'm not duped by Charlie Garrett or by anybody else, that they will read the word. And so when they hear something, they will immediately have a sense that that doesn't sound right. And I'm going to check it out. Lord, give people that much wisdom that they would be willing to check these things out and not believe just what they have heard because somebody sounds like a professional because how many people have gone down the wrong path because of that help us lord to be wise in our pursuit of you help it help it to be that way so that we will bring glory to you and that we will be built up in you and that things will be rosy on our walk to glory and we thank you for jesus christ our lord and for all he has done for us and how precious he is thank you lord god for him and so it's in his beautiful name we pray amen, amen. Okay, let's put that on break and then we'll say goodbye to folks online.